I get asked a lot of the same questions. One of the questions people say is, what in the world are you wearing? And uh, since you guys are from this area, you might recognize my shirt as a ribbon shirt, like uh, traditional men would wear to the longhouse, to a feast or uh, a gathering uh, at the longhouse. Um, and I wore this one. I have more than one ribbon shirt. I also have on my, one of my medallions here. And I wore these to, because uh, when I introduced myself, I really should also tell you my Indian name, um, but I, I get shy about that. I'm not a very shy person, but I feel funny telling folks that I have an Indian name and especially explaining what it means because it's kind of overwhelming uh, to me. Uh, it's just a tremendous honor uh, that I was given an Indian name. And then the name that they chose to give me is is even 10 times more of an honor. And I'll, you'll understand that in a minute. But my Indian name is Mool Mool. So M-O-O-L-M-O-O-L. And that's actually an onomatopoeia word uh, that it sounds uh, like bubbling water coming up out of the ground. So like a spring of water coming up out of the ground. And um, are, is anybody familiar with the place that was called Mool Mool? Does anybody know about Mool Mool? Nope. How about Fort Simcoe? Anybody ever heard of Fort Simcoe? Okay. Well, before the fort was there, that was Mool Mool. And even today, you can go to Fort Simcoe, and there's an underground spring that comes up out of, the, out of the ground right there. And that's why the Army chose to put the fort right there. One of the reasons was there's fresh water available. It was a strategic spot. But it's also kind of to say, hey, we're coming in here, and we're going to do what we want to do. And it doesn't matter what you think. We're going to, you know, we're going to put this right here, and you're not going to do anything to stop it. So it was kind of a, a forceful way of coming into the valley and saying we're in charge. So before the fort was there, though, that was Mool Mool. And the thing that people loved about Mool Mool is you're, it's, a dry, it's a dry valley, not a lot of water. Uh, so you knew that there was going to be fresh, clear, cold even water in that spot. And because there's water there, there's also great big trees. So there's shade in the summertime that would have been appreciated. Uh, but there's, it was also a gathering place. So if you wanted to go hunting, a lot of times you'd swing by and stop at Mool Mool, maybe spend the night there and see what other folks were gathering there to go hunting. And so you could go with them. Or if you wanted to gather huckleberries or roots or maybe go down to the river and go fishing, you might go to Mool Mool first and see what friends and family members are there and then go from there. So it was sort of a staging area uh, as you moved into the next area. Well, the man that gave me my Indian name, he said, that's what I see you and your people. And that's one of the reasons I'm kind of determined to tell you my name is because you guys have helped us get to a point where I was able to receive a name. Uh, but he said, you and your people are like Mool Mool. He said, Jesus is bubbling out of you and your people the way that that water bubbles at, at Mool Mool. And you're preparing people to do the next thing, to move on and, and to, you're gathering people together when they come to church, they find shelter, they find the living water, they find food and fellowship and all the things that they need to go out and do the next thing uh, together. So that's, uh, that's why I wore this particular ribbon shirt, because it would force me to tell you my Indian name. But you guys have played a part in that, and I want you to know that as well. Uh, the man who gave me my name, uh, his wife uh, gave me 
this medallion. And the cool thing about this, I have a lot of these too, but uh, this one's about the exact same age as me. So this one's almost 50 years old, and uh, her mom made it. Her mom passed away years ago. And so this is a really special medallion for me too. So when I put on my shirt and my medallion, I remember uh, my native uh, family and how much they love me. And so it's good to, to be with you guys today. I'm also married, uh, my wife Mary, and we have five kids. Our four, four oldest kids have all moved out of the house and gone off to college. Three of them are through with college, and our son is about to finish up. And then we have one uh, young lady still at home. Uh, she came to live with us when she was eight, and she just turned 16, and she goes to Riverside Christian. She'll be in 11th grade. Her name's Connie. And the whole family has been very involved in the ministry from the very beginning and very active in it. Uh, when we moved to the reservation, it was about 15 years ago, we told our kids, even though they were young, they, our oldest was 10 and our youngest was five, um, we told them that God's calling all six of us at that time uh, to serve on the reservation. And uh, each one of us has a different role. And even our son, he was five, we said, you're gonna have opportunities to love people and to share God's love and his truth with people that don't know it, maybe people that haven't experienced his love, you'll have opportunities that, that mom and I might not ever have because of your age and all of that. And so look for kids that are a little bit younger than you that you can reach out to. And all, the, all of our kids did that. And so it's, it feels funny being here without my wife and kids. Uh, my wife is actually in White Swan at our church right now serving lunch. Uh, after she'll be helping serve the meal right after lunch. That's why she's not with me today. But another thing people ask when we visit churches, they'll say, well, what are you excited about? What, what's God doing on the reservation? Well, when we moved uh, here, again, it was June in 2003, so 15 years ago, the goal was always from the beginning to start a local church. Uh, there were a whole bunch of obstacles in the way. When we first arrived here, I wasn't even ordained. So technically, I wasn't even a church planter yet, right? Uh, so a lot of things had to happen. A lot of things had to change. The experts were telling us we weren't going to last two years, and, and we didn't know. I mean, they, we were afraid they might be right. Uh, they said, you're, you know, no, you're not going to make it. You're just not going to. One guy was really aggressive, actually, with me. He had grown up. His father was a pastor on a reservation in California, and uh, this, this son of a pastor, he got in, in my face. He was real aggressive. He said, don't you dare do this. Don't move your wife and kids to White Swan. He said, you're crazy if you do this. You're not even going to make it two years. He said, but even if you did manage to survive two years and live there two years, you're not going to have a decent conversation for like eight years. And even if you make it that long, you'll never be part of the community. Even if you live there 30 years, You'll never be part of the community. You'll always be an outcast, always an outsider. The people in White Swan don't want you there. Don't do it. And he could kind of, he could see he still wasn't changing my mind <laughs> because I was, I felt compelled and, and I really believed that God was calling us to do it by then. And so he could tell he wasn't changing my mind. So he got more aggressive and he said, he said, those people are going to chew you up and spit you out and your wife and kids too. Don't you dare take them there. And it was tough. Um, I felt at that time, it was not long before we did move to White Swan. And as a husband and a father, 
everything in me was saying, don't you dare take your wife and kids, just like that guy was saying. But as a follower of Christ and a believer, everything was saying, but you're called to do this. How can you not obey the calling, you know? And so the experts said we weren't going to make it. We thought they might be right. We just knew we were supposed to come. <laughs> uh, we didn't know for how long or whatever. But by God's grace, we've, we're, we've made it. We're still there. And there's a church. We have a church. It's actually happening right now uh, without me even this morning. They're, they're having church. Uh, it's a lot different from Sun Valley. Uh, on a typical Sunday morning, we'll have anywhere from about, I guess, 45 to 70 children that are uh, fifth grade and younger. Most of the kids, a large majority, like 90 to 95 percent, come without any adults. They just hop on the bus when it shows up at their house. A lot of times they don't even know it's Sunday until the bus shows up, <laughs> and then they hop on. And there's this great story. One, one of the kids, one day, our bus driver pulled up, and the little guy was worried that he was going to get left. He was probably five. And nobody wakes the kids up. Nobody feeds them breakfast. Nobody helps them get ready for church. Nobody makes them go to church. They just come because they want to. But this little guy woke up and realized the bus was outside and that it was Sunday, and he just came sprinting out of the house naked. I mean, he had no clothes, no shoes, no nothing. Just ran as fast as he could. He was afraid he was going to get left, you know. I told that story in Georgia, and the pastor asked his people, he said, when was the last time you were so excited to get to church you ran out the door with no clothes on? But this little guy, he just knew, if I can get to church, they'll take care of everything else. You know, like they're going to... And, uh, but the bus driver said, I'll wait for you, you know, go back inside. Um, you can, I'll wait, you can get dressed. And so, but that's kind of the attitude. Every Sunday morning, it feels like Christmas morning at our church because the kids can't wait uh, to get there. And so I'm, a I'm happy to be with you guys, but I'm a little sad because I'm missing out on that uh, at our church this morning. It's always hard to be away. So about 50 or 60 kids that are fifth grade and younger these days, we usually have anywhere from 20 to 25 teenagers and about 20 to 25 adults. So the average age of our church is like nine, probably. I don't know. Um, but it's a really interesting dynamic, and it's amazing how well the kids do and how much they want to be there, the teenagers. Uh, we're excited to have church. We're also excited about the way God's moving and working among our teenagers. Uh, our youth group started out about 10 years ago. And the first youth group meeting, I think there were six leaders and four teenagers at the very first uh, youth group meeting. Uh, so we went from four teenagers. Now it's typical to have anywhere from 80 to 100, uh, sometimes 100, 120 on a Tuesday night. And at a special event, it'll be 175. Uh, we'll rent the whole skating rink out or the whole corn maze or whatever and, and have a big outreach event. So the teenagers are really responding. Uh, to, and I was sharing with somebody earlier that they don't all believe what we believe, but they want to be with somebody that does believe that there's more to life than drinking or drugging or sleeping or video games or whatever else, right? So they're not all believers by any stretch. Most of the kids in our youth group are not Christians yet, but they're very interested, and they want to be with people who do believe in something bigger than themselves, and so the Lord is drawing uh, kids. There are about 40 teenagers in discipleship groups now, and we're raising up. We're seeing young leaders uh, that are stepping up into leadership roles. That's something I'm real excited about 
um, equipping the saints for ministry is a huge focus that we have right now. There's a, there's a lot more. I mean, there's economic development now that's really getting going. There's after-school programs. Uh, there's all sorts of good things happening that we're real excited about uh, in the ministry. And I'd love to share more. I, I, I'll get carried away and spend all the time talking about that if I'm not careful. Um, this, this passage, Isaiah 58, that you just heard read, and in particular the verses 6 through 12, or what I'd like to focus on this morning. And this is really a cornerstone passage for Sacred Road. And in all the years of being on the reservation, even the years of getting to the reservation, uh, this passage has never let me down. There have been a lot of times I was confused, very, very confused, had no idea what to do next. And if I went to Isaiah 58, I always found the answer for the next step. And, and it was always just hardly ever the next day. It was just the next step. Uh, you, you know, you've heard, I'm sure you've heard the analogy of in the Psalms. Is it Psalms or Proverbs? It says that God's word is a lamp unto our feet, right? It's not a spotlight that shows down the path a mile ahead. It's just the next step. But Isaiah 58 has always given me at least the next step. Uh, in all these years. And it's been just a cornerstone passage. Whenever we get confused, whenever we run out of energy, whenever we don't know what to do, when somebody else on our staff is struggling or somebody in the church, we can come back to this again and again. It's let, never let me down. Um, and so I wanted to share it with you this morning. Let's look at it. It says in verse 6, it starts out, it says, Is this not the kind of fasting that I've chosen? In essence, what God's saying to his people through Isaiah is, listen up for a minute, I'm going to redefine fasting for you. You've been barking up the wrong tree, right? And they, they complain about that in the beginning of, of the chapter. You know that the people are complaining because they're, doing, they're fasting and they're doing all this other spiritual activity. They're being very religious, but at the same time, they don't feel like God is close. And they don't feel like God's really paying attention. They don't really feel like he's blessing them. But they have a very specific definition for blessings, and they have, they're kind of barking up the wrong tree when, when it comes to, to serving the Lord and drawing near to Him, right? They're being really religious, they're doing a lot of spiritual stuff, but they don't really love the Lord. And how do you know that? Well, it's because they're not loving their neighbors, right? I have a friend who's a pastor in Oregon. He said that that's what the prophets, that's in essence what the prophets always say. They come to the people and they say, well, you say you love the Lord, but I know you don't because you don't love your neighbors. Or you say you love your neighbors, but I know you don't because you don't really love the Lord. And he said, that's, in essence, that's the, the message of all the prophets. And that's true here. At least. I, haven't, I don't know for sure, but that's true at least right here, right? Isaiah's coming to the people and saying, you look like you love God and you do all the right stuff. You're even fasting. You know, I mean, what's more spiritual than that, right? <laughs> like, uh, but you don't love your neighbors, so you don't love the Lord, right? And that's kind of the essence. So he says, is not this the fast that I choose? This is what God's saying to his people. To loose the bonds of wickedness and to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. The first time I read that, 
I remember thinking, well, that's a job for Superman. <laughs> that's, I'm just a regular guy. Like, what, how am I supposed to, I don't even know, I don't know anything about the bonds of wickedness and straps of the yoke and oppression and all that. That sounds like a job for, like, judges and lawyers and politicians and something, I don't know, the UN or somebody should be doing that. <clears throat> what am I supposed to do? I'm just a regular guy. I don't know anything about all that. And the Lord knew that people like me would say that. So he gave us verse 7, where he just breaks it all down. He says, let me tell you what I'm talking about. He said, here it is. Is it not, the kind of fast I choose, is it not to share your bread with the hungry? So think about that for a minute. All right, if you're fasting, that means you're not eating your bread, right? Why don't you give it away? <laughs> He's going to say it is kind of, why not, don't just leave it in the cabinet. If you're not going to eat it, go find somebody that needs it and give it to them, Right? He said, is the fasting I choose not to share, with your, share your bread with the hungry, but then he doesn't stop there, and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Now that, that I understand. Okay, Verse 6 is above my head. I don't know about legal stuff and political. I'm really not political have no desire to be, I can't read legal documents, you know, all that, all this oppression and setting people free and all, that's like, I don't know. But then when he says, okay, what I'm actually saying is share your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your home, clothe the naked on their way to church, right? Uh, and don't hide yourself from your own flesh and blood. Now, that's simple. I understand that, but it's not easy, Right? I mean, I struggle with the first word, share your bread with the hungry. So I don't remember a whole lot from my childhood, but I vividly remember my mom teaching me what it meant to share. And I think I was like three years old, four years old, and she was explaining to me, if you have two cookies and you have a friend over to play, you give one of the cookies to your friend. Or if you're playing with your toys, you know, then you let your friend use half your toys, share your, you share your toys, share your cookie, whatever. And I remember at age three or four thinking, I do not like this concept of sharing. If I have two cookies, I want two cookies, right? They could go get their own cookies, right? And my mom, I mean, she was, I remember her being really insistent about that, especially when we had people over to the house, when I had a friend over, before the friend would even get there. She said, all right, now I want you, if so-and-so's coming, you have to share. You're going to, and I, ooh, I just remember thinking, eh, maybe so-and-so shouldn't come. Because I don't really want to share. I've never liked sharing. I don't. I, st I still don't. I'm just being honest. You know, real. I don't like to lie to folks when I'm preaching. You know, so. Um, but I don't. I don't like to share. Oh, it's so bad. Even like if my wife and I, we may go on a date to a restaurant, right? And we agonize over. Them. Oh, first, we agonize where are you going. Oh, I don't know where you want to. I don't know you go. So we finally pick a place, and then we agonize where we're going to eat. Oh, I don't know. Okay, I'll get this. You get that. But then she always wants a bite of whatever I have, and I don't like that. I like I will buy you the whole thing, and you can just eat one bite, and we'll take the rest home. But don't. This is mine. I don't want you to share it. I know we're on a date. I know you're my wife. We've been married what 27 years or something. But you know, she always wants a bite of whatever it is I've got, and I just bristle. You know, just I'm and I'm just got to the first word, share your bread with the hungry, right? Share your meal with your wife. Oh, okay. Anyway, share your bread with the hungry. Bring the homeless poor into your house. Well, that's a little even more disturbing. I, I think I like that less than sharing. Don't raise your hand, but have you ever brought a homeless person into your house 
for the night, even just one night, much less weeks, longer. Well, I hadn't done much of that before we moved to the reservation, done quite a bit now. You don't sleep as good when you have a poor wanderer, as another version says, in your house. You know, you don't rest quite the same way if you have a stranger in your house. The trouble with strangers is they're strange, right? And spending the night, that is strange, and it's, it's unnerving, it's unsettling. When you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Now, I think that little phrase would have really gotten Isaiah in deep water. Uh, he probably was already in deep water with the people. But that phrase, in that context, with the people of Israel at that time, that would have been, I think that really would have been an insult. Because he's saying, don't turn your back on your own flesh and blood, or don't hide yourself from your own flesh. He just redefined who their own flesh and blood is, right? He's saying, don't ignore the fact that the hungry, the naked, the homeless, those are your people. And that would have been, those would have been fighting words, right, with the people in that time. Because their people were all taken care of. Their people were all fine. The outsiders, the refugees, the outcasts, the, what, the alien, you know, they were the ones that were hungry and homeless and naked and all that. And Isaiah is saying, no, those are your people. Well, how is that true? How, how could that possibly be true for God's people and the folks he's talking to? What he's saying is, don't forget your story. Don't forget that your people were slaves in Israel. I mean, in Egypt. Don't forget that God heard you. Don't forget that when you were naked, when you were hungry, when you, when you were the one suffering oppression and your hands were tied and you bore the yoke, that God responded appropriately and strongly, that means these are your people, the ones who are suffering and hurting now. You were naked, you were hungry, you were a poor wanderer, homeless in the desert. Don't turn your back on your own flesh and blood. Well, what about us? I've never even been to Egypt, right? <laughs> uh, but where was I when Jesus came for me, right? We've got to remember our story or else this doesn't make any sense at all. Do you look at homeless folks and think they're my people? Do you look at folks that are hungry? A little bit later, there's a phrase that says, satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Do you look at the afflicted and think those are my people? They are, right? When we were afflicted, Jesus came for us. And he says, don't turn your back on your own flesh and blood. He keeps going. Look at the promises here in verse 8. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will spring up speedily. Your righteousness will go before you. Some versions, are, the actual translation I think says, the righteous one will go before you. I love that. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you'll call and the Lord will answer. You'll cry and he'll say, here I am. Now think about that. There's six promises there. And they're strange promises. At the beginning of the chapter, when the Israelites are complaining that God's not blessing them the way they want, I don't think this is what they had in mind. These are bigger, better, deeper blessings than what they were really asking for. 
or what probably we ask for a lot of times. But think about each one of these things. Your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will spring up speedily. Well, if that means you're in the dark, okay, if your light is going to break forth, that means you've gotten into a dark place, right? Your healing will spring up speedily. That means you're either sick or injured because of where, because of where following Jesus has taken you, right? And then it says your righteousness will go before you. The righteous one will go before you. That means you need somebody to guide you and protect you on the, in the front end. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. That means somebody's after you. Okay, that means somebody's trying to sneak up behind you and get you. It says, then you'll call and the Lord will answer. You'll cry and he'll say, here I am. I don't know. One of the th- another thing I hate, I hate sharing. Um, I hate asking for help. Does anybody else, does that, y'all hate asking, does anybody else help, hate asking for help? I really do. I really do. There's a story it takes too long to tell you that just epitomizes. It was almost a life or death situation, and somebody offered to help me, and I just really didn't want to say, yes, I need help. You know? We don't want to get in a situation where we have to cry for help. We, we do a lot to avoid those situations when you think about it, Right? Like, I mean, we spend years, decades, trying to get in spot where we don't have to cry for help. We're pretty, pretty committed to that, right? But the Lord's saying, I want you to go out on that limb, knowing that I'm with you. And if and when that limb breaks, I'll be there to catch you, you know. Keeps going. It says, if you take away the yoke. From your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness. Another version says malicious talk. Now, we could talk about this from a lot of different angles, but since I'm serving in White Swan, uh, think about all the malicious talk you hear about Native people. Maybe about the Yakima Nation in particular, or White Swan. In particular, have you ever heard of anything good? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. Only the bad news makes it off the res. Only the bad news makes it off the res, you know. So there's a lot of malicious talk about Native people. I was full of it <laughs> in more ways than one. I didn't mean to say that. More ways than one. Um, before we moved to the reservation, um, people think that since we moved to the res and, and lived there, Well, you know, maybe Chris had a soft spot in his heart for Native people from the time he was young. I didn't. I didn't have a soft spot in my heart toward Native people. I didn't have a soft spot for people struggling with addictions. I didn't have a soft spot for poor folks in the United States. I was pretty hard-hearted toward everybody in each one of those groups uh, before we moved to the reservation. I, I feel like the least likely person that that God would that was a big part of my argument against uh, coming to White Swan for a year and a half that I argued with the Lord about it I'm the last guy that you would want to send there I'm not very good cross-culturally typically my wife's really good I'm kind of a bull in a china shop and man I have had to take my spankings you know I break break cultural rules I should know better all that I still it's just rough you know I'm just I don't know. I'm not the guy I would have picked <laughs> to do this. And I was pretty hard-hearted, and I didn't realize it 
and I was full of malicious talk. A lot of times it comes out like this. <laughs> Why don't they just dot, dot, dot? Nothing brilliant has ever been said after that opener. I'll just tell you, in 15 years, missions, conferences all over the country, all that, nobody has said a single brilliant thing <laughs> after why don't they just, okay? So if, any, if you fill in that blank, just toss it. Yeah, they would have figured that out by now, okay? I promise. There's smart people on the res too that are working, not me, I'm talking about other <laughs> native folks that are good at figuring things out. And if it was that simple, they would have figured it out, okay? But malicious talk, it takes a lot of different forms, you know? And what God's saying is there's no place for that among my people. Based on where we were, based on where we've come from, malicious talk doesn't make any sense, does it? When you really stop and think about it. We don't have any business. If anybody ever could justify malicious talk, it was Jesus. He's the one that could have been pointing fingers, right? And if he didn't do it, we really have no business doing it. It continues. Let's see. Verse 10, this is a catchphrase here. This is a, it says, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, and then there's more promises. But let's think about that for a minute. Pour yourself out. In the first service, I actually shared a story I have never shared before, and I didn't plan on sharing it this morning, but it is a good example of a time I really felt, I'm sure I could think of a lot more, but a time recently when I really felt spent and poured out. Uh, my wife and I were traveling in the southeast. Uh, some of it was vacation. Some of it was visiting churches and missions conferences and things like that. But we went by my grandparents' house in south Alabama. My grandmother is 97. My grandfather was 96. And he had been having a good bit of health problems uh, in the previous year. But it was worse than we knew. And uh, we got there and realized he's essentially on his, while we were there the first few days, he essentially went to his deathbed uh, while we were there. And so we extended our time to try to help. There was nobody in that area to help my grandmother. Like I didn't realize all my relatives have gotten old. <laughs> they all have bad backs and everything else. They couldn't help. And so it fell to me and my wife to do hospice care uh, for my grandfather. And I think if I'd had a little time to brace myself for it and all that, and I, I, I could have done better, but it was, it was a shock. Um, and a year before that, my nephew died at age 13 of a brain tumor. A year before that, his father died of cancer, my younger brother. So there's been a lot of funerals and a lot of death even in my immediate family. So we're kind of reeling to start with, but then Doing hospice care, I never knew what that meant, <laughs> and now I do. And uh, my grandfather stopped eating and drinking that first week that we were there. And, but he, he, he lived for another month after that. I didn't even think that was possible. And it was, I mean, it was just every day we thought was his last day. And um, that, at the end of that month, I was poured out. I mean, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, socially, I mean, I was empty. And that's something else we really avoid. 
right? We avoid that place. We do not like feeling spent. We do not like feeling empty and poured out. But I think what the Lord is telling us here is, that's what following Jesus feels like. Maybe not every single day, but probably quite often. And let's stop again for a minute and say, well, wait a minute. If that's true, you know, maybe, I mean, look at the guy's shirt. Maybe he's just, maybe, you know, maybe Chris is making stuff up, you know. But if I'm not, how could that possibly be true? Where would we find the courage, the whatever, the wherewithal, right, to move in that direction and really do that? Only when we remember Jesus. Talk about being poured out. Think about the cross. I mean, he was literally, his body was literally broken and his blood was poured out. Like he, Isaiah, like the Lord speaking through Isaiah was not joking around in this passage, right? Jesus was not calling us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us. And in one way or another is still doing for us, right? Has Jesus poured himself out for you? Well, if he has, it only makes sense to turn around and pour ourselves out for somebody else who's afflicted, who's enslaved, who's suffering. Don't turn your back on your own flesh and blood. We need to redefine who are our people, right? And he says, look at the promises again that come. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom will be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in the scorched places and make your bones strong. And you'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Again, those promises are probably not the blessings that the people were asking for at the beginning of this chapter. And again, they may not be the blessings that we're looking for either, but they probably ought to be the blessings we're looking for, right? He, he's really saying, get yourself in a predicament. <laughs> get yourself in a place where you're satisfying the desires of the afflicted in such a way that you're in the dark and you need the light to break out. Your gloom needs to be transformed into the light of the noonday. You're going to need the guidance. I'm so grateful for that one, the, gui- the guidance. I mean, I am, I'm, I'm easily confused, <laughs> even when I'm not in a cross-cultural situation, okay? Um, I have dyslexia. I wasn't the best student. Like, it's just not hard, to, it's not hard for me to get confused. And so knowing that the Lord is going to be there to guide me, when I have no idea what's going on, and there's been just so many times <laughs> that I had no idea what was going on. But he led me through it, you know. He showed me what to do next or what not to do. He'll satisfy your desires in scorched places and make your bones strong. Strengthen your frame is another version. And then the promise, you'll be like a well-watered garden like a spring whose waters never fail. One of the reasons I told you my Indian name, Mumul, is I'm hoping that if you pray for us, that's what you'll pray. 
is that me, my wife, everybody, we have 11 people on staff now. I forgot to tell you that. Something else I'm excited about. We have 11 staff people. For the first five years, it was me and my wife and our four kids. That's it. <laughs> uh, now we have 11 people on full-time staff. We have three part-time staff, plus their wives and kids and everybody. At Christmas, we had a gathering for our staff and staff families and volunteers that were really involved. And there were 55 people there. I was shocked. I mean, I'm supposed to be running the thing. I couldn't believe we had, it included the kids too, but still, it's like, wow, this, talk about a core group, you know? And it's happening, and I'm thrilled to be part of it. I can't keep track of it, but I'm thrilled to be part of it. Um, but pray that all of us, our whole church family, would be like an oasis in the desert. Pray that we would all live up to my name. Uh, in a collectivist culture, when the leader is given a name, it's for all the people, right? And so that, that's part of the reason I tell you guys that too. Uh, but pray that, as Wendell would say, me and my people will live up to the name Mumu. That by God's grace and, and through the power of the Spirit, we will be like a watered garden whose waters never fail that we're full of the living water, full of Jesus to overflowing. Verse 12, this one I used to leave out. I didn't even, I couldn't comprehend it. It was kind of like verse 6 that just sounded so way over my head that I didn't know what to think about it. But now I understand a little bit more. Verse 12 says, your ancient ruins will be rebuilt. You'll raise up the age-old foundations, the foundations of many generations, and you'll be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Kind of mystical, kind of abstract, whatever. But what it's talking about is communities being transformed by the power of the gospel, right? The love and the truth of Christ transforming not just individuals, not just households, but towns and communities being transformed. That's another thing that, if you remember, that's the great thing to pray for. Pray that, that one day people would come back to White Swan, you know, maybe five years from now, ten years from now, whenever, 30, they would come to White Swan and they would look around and say, whoa, what happened here? And everybody would point to Jesus. You know, I don't want any Granberry Memorial nothing. I want everybody to look right past me and point to Jesus, you know, and say, the Lord did this. The Lord did this. He transformed. He can redeem and restore and renew, revitalize, reinvigorate. Uh, not just individuals, not just families, but communities. And that's what we're really praying for in White Swan. One story I wanted to share with you before I leave. And again, this one, this uh, will be my last story. And it, it fits in with me sharing my, my name with you too. Uh, years ago, when we had first arrived on the reservation, I think it might have been our second summer, I was still very clueless <laughs> about things. And, but we had some friends uh, in town, and they wanted to go to a powwow. And so we slipped in. We, the idea was we are going to slip in, slip out kind of quick because they had to leave the next day. And uh, we slipped in right at the moment when the drumming and singing stopped and the dancing stopped. And I didn't realize, but the man that gave me the Indian name, his name's Wendell, 
He was the MC at the powwow, which I didn't know. There are a lot of things I didn't know in those days. But he was the MC, and I timed it just perfectly, so he slipped in right at a break in the action. And Wendell took that opportunity to introduce me to everybody that was there. Uh, and we looked around pretty quick and realized we were the only non-Indians there. Uh, so, so much for slipping in, slipping out, right? And so we went and sat down and, and tried to be inconspicuous and just watch whatever. So then there was another song, another more drumming and dancing. And after that dance finished, uh, Wendell did something surprising. Uh, he went out on the floor and he sent all the dancers to the stands. And uh, he laid down four Pendleton blankets in the middle of the dance floor. And then he called out a man named uh, Kenny Scabby Robe, who's a famous, uh, he's a famous drummer and singer with the Black Lodge Singers. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they're world famous, actually. Uh, he was also a championship grass dancer, and he was also a Baptist preacher for 13 years, which I didn't know at that point. But Wendell called Kenny out, and then he called my name, and so I went out and stood next to Kenny. Then he called my wife to come out. And then he called Chuck, who's now our youth director, but back then had no idea he was going to be moving to the reservation at all. He was a graphic artist in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, but he was there, and he got called out, and now he's on the rest. So now Wendell told the drummers and singers to play and sing. He told Kenny to start dancing around the blankets, and he told us to follow Kenny and do what he does. Well, I'm no kind of dancer, any kind, any kind of dancing. Uh, but Kenny started uh, grass dancing, and I started doing my best to follow his lead. I mean, and I'm, still, I'm thinking, okay, everybody with regalia is in the stands, and I'm on the floor. This is not, this is so weird and messed up. As we were going to slip in, slip out, and now I'm dancing. I think it was the first time I ever danced at a powwow. Anyway, I was trying to follow Kenny, and he would look over his shoulder and look at us and look at the crowd like, what are they doing back there? You know, I thought we were grass dancing, and so then he would do other stuff like, I don't know, the waltz and the Watusi and something, I don't know. And I couldn't do any of it, so he just went back to grass dancing. He did the moonwalk. I couldn't do it. Um, so then he just kept going, and so we danced around the blankets, followed Kenny around and around. And then when the song was over, Wendell told each of the four of us to take a blanket uh, off the floor. And then we went back to our seats. And a few weeks later, Wendell said, uh, you probably didn't know what that was about, did you? And I can't tell you how many times he said that to me. <laughs> I said, nope, <laughs> I sure didn't. He, I said, tell me, what, what, what was that about? He said, well, I wanted the community to see what I see. Uh, he said, you and your people, again, I'm telling you this, because in Wendell's mind, you guys are some of my people. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that, but... You can argue with Wendell about it if you want to. Anyway, in his mind, you're, you're part of our people because you've been praying, giving, coming, and involved helping us. He said, I wanted everybody there to see what I see. He said, you and your people are dancing around our land, and you're lifting the sorrows and the burdens off of our people like you lifted those blankets up off the floor. And he's right. I mean, that's our desire is to dance to the sound of the gospel. Right, And by God's grace and through his strength to lift sorrows and burdens off of people who have no hope many times. I recently heard, this last thing, I recently heard a, or saw a quote from somebody that survived the concentration camps in World War II, the Holocaust. And this uh, survivor, what they said was, even a shred of hope is a very powerful thing. 
even a shred of hope. Surely, by God's grace, we can offer our neighbors, whoever they are, at least a shred of hope, right? There was a time in my life where that was the difference between life and death, was one shred of hope. And uh, maybe your neighbors are in the same situation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to remember what you've done for us. Lord, that when you call us to satisfy the desire of the afflicted, that that, that will bring back memories to so many times when we've been afflicted and you loved us, took care of us. Lord, I pray that you would help us remember where we would be today if you hadn't reached out and grabbed us. Lord, you went way out of your way and you paid the ultimate price so that we could be brought in to the family of God. Lord, I don't know how we forget that. I don't know how it slips out of the front of my mind, but it does. And we pray, Lord, that all of us, that we would remember and believe what you've done for us. And that by your grace, we would turn and reach out to others who are without hope apart from you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.